So, what is the news media, at least in the context of this podcast? There is a broad concept of all media, like books, television, film and social media. But in this podcast, we'll be talking about the news media specifically. Newspapers, radio, television and online news. Today, the news media is largely disliked. Rumours of political bias and Machiavellian plots to undermine people's rights and information, or rumours of potential conspiracies. And then there are the theories that the news media are in cahoots with their billionaire owners who make them refuse to publish anything bad about potential sponsors or anything vaguely out of the ordinary. Meanwhile, the clickbait nature of much news media, the tech company algorithms limiting your views of other news stories, and the closed, behind-the-door nature of much news media still stops many from trusting the news media as an information source. I think these are all valid criticisms of the news media, and to varying extent are accurate. But the news media itself is still one of the most remarkable and important results of inventions. The news media is an invention in itself, and its rise has constantly been on the back of other inventions. The written word, the printing press, further innovations in the printing press, the development of transportation and telegraphy, and then the radio, television and internet technologies, which all helped with the rise and democratisation of the media as it pushed the dissemination of information towards every person on the planet. And yet the story of how important the news media is to the quality of life and freedom we all live in is generally not understood. Cast the media as an important at your peril. The media as a concept only goes back to the 1920s, but for most of human history, information has been one of the most valuable commodities humans can possess. As Francis Bacon said, quote unquote, knowledge is power. The state, or whatever preceded it, has an almost monopoly on information, as information was only able to travel amongst the literate or from person to person, information was highly restricted, and with that, a monopoly on power. The ability for more independent, normal people to get information and spread it without harassment from authorities has been a vital part of human progress. This is why authoritarians try to limit peer-to-peer communication as much as possible. See the Great Firewall of China, where person-to-person communication is dwarfed by the possibilities of getting information from the state. The USSR, meanwhile, could have invested in telephone networks, but chose to invest in its ability to broadcast to the populace, extending its power, but reducing the possibility for information to spread amongst the people. When the USSR collapsed, it had a much shorter telephone network than comparable states, while much of the network that did exist was rooted through Moscow, as it was easier to spy on. Once countries open up their media, their dirty laundry is going to come out too. The opening up of the public square and the dissemination of information through the media is a new phenomenon. And it's no coincidence the opening up of this area sees symmetry of progress in other areas too. The public square began opening up around 1600, just after the printing press had spread out over much of Europe, leading to a renaissance in scientific revolution and in art. So how was the news spread before the media? What impact did it have, and how did it develop to what we see today? And what are the main issues of the press, and how can it be improved? 
The news media and the spread of information is vital to the coming together of communities. The quicker information can travel, the more we feel together. We share commonalities. In 1600, while Shakespeare was writing his plays, how many people could actually talk about them? How many could read them? It is estimated that 3,000 could see a play at the Globe Theatre, and that was basically that. Compare this to Charles Dickens' writings 250 years later, where many more people could read it as it was published simultaneously all over the country, and indeed all over the world. And you begin to share more commonalities with people as you slowly learn you have more in common, including in the type of things you hear, read and see. If you're from Kent, you begin to share more and more with somebody from Manchester. As the 20th century arrived and we get mass media forms like television and radio, the distance from Kent and Manchester was reduced even further. You get the same TV, films, experiences, read the same books and see the same news. The idea of Kent and Manchester being similar in 1600 would have been insane. Go there now, and people would be much more similar, with similar ideas and similar cultural reference points. The news media is extraordinarily powerful. I'm writing this episode on the first day the UK goes into full lockdown over the coronavirus outbreak. Studying the media around this time is to study the story of the pandemic. We learned about the Wuhan virus from the media. It spread in China and then to Italy and Spain, all from the media as it happened. The quickness we can pick up information and learn what is going on is a real revolution. Even compared to the swine flu epidemic of 10 years ago, we get so much more information that we're able to see in real time and that changes how we live our lives. In the political world, it is perhaps the most important function of the news media. But what do they actually do? There are four general tasks the media gives the world. The simple covering of organisations makes the media act as a spark for accountability. Public sector decision makers are highly media sensitive. No politician wants to be seen as an idiot, no matter how hard they try and look like ones. The media acts as the spark to the fire but needs additional fuel from an external source. Secondly, the media can act as a forum for accountability. They can ask critical questions on the basis of their own agenda. This could be a good or bad thing, depending on their agenda, of course. But I think in general, it's been a good thing. The truth is in most people's interest. This is classic watchdog journalists. Thirdly, the media can amplify accountability. The news media can show or highlight events like Prime Minister's Question Time or Senate Committees and show everybody what happened. Finally, the media may trigger a formal accountability process and bring up pertinent questions to ask. The 2020 coronavirus outbreak may be the first ever real event to bring the world together, as war in 1750 might have brought a nation together that didn't have much in common other than a similar dialect and a monarch the coronavirus is bringing the world together to fight a common enemy. In 1750, this common enemy would have been France. In 1750, the state manoeuvred all it could to get the population mobilised and prepared for the outbreak of war. The same is happening to some extent on a worldwide basis during this outbreak. 
People in quarantine are going through the same all over the world. There is every wish for everybody to get through the outbreak. Before there was the written word, there was the spoken news. This is how information spread in every single place before civilizations had the ability to disseminate information via the written word. When the British went all the way out to the northeast of modern-day South Africa, they found the Zulus who were unified by King Shaka. And one of their key successes was their ability to spread news all over their empire in relatively rapid time. The Zulus had no written communication and so relied upon the ability to run news from one area by word of mouth. In 1872, when a Zulu king died, the news was spread by word of mouth over 300 miles quicker than it took the British to get the news and put it in their newspaper. The advanced system was vital to the development of peoples. The ease of getting news over land helped to create people and states. It is no coincidence the nation-state began and feudalism declines when news spread further and quicker. Communication not only allows for our increase in knowledge, but is further evidence of our acknowledgement of a societal debt. We know we need to know something about the society we live in and understand what is going on. The development of a well-informed citizenry, coupled with a well-educated one, is only going to push civil society in one direction. And in any genuine democracy, that will result and genuine progress. This isn't a perfect model, and there are many nodes blocking this, from bad reporting to state interference, but the Zulus show us the very need and basic idea of why all civilizations need news. The Zulus used oral news, as every civilization has done at some point. However, it does have its limits. Oral news is unreliable and there's only so much information you can carry beyond the headline. Imagine if you had to memorise a newspaper, travel a dozen miles to the next village and repeat it verbatim. As anyone who's ever worked in an office will tell you, oral news quickly becomes gossip, which becomes myth, and quickly only becomes tangentially related to the actual information. Oral news does not provide too much information. It's slow to travel, as literally a person will need to carry it, and the details will change to some degree. If you want an even more informed citizenry, it is best to write stuff down and let people read it from the source. Much news in early times came from travellers rather than official sources. People exchanged information in the marketplace, and you can imagine something that happened in one city and told in another and repeat ad nauseum will mean what you actually hear will be somewhat different from what actually happened. If it's between official sources, like from a central church to priests, or from a government half to towns, they will only receive what a messenger sends them. It might be news, but it's hardly all the news of the state. But like today, where people hardly sit and read the newspaper from front to back anymore, or watch all the news bulletins, we still pick up things here and there. And that's how it's worked for millennia. We pick up stories from friends, where we might have seen a headline and not looked into something and then our friend filled us in. Or we read about it on online news discussions. Or we listen to satire of the news, which can often inform us as much as the actual news. The same happened in oral times. 
the news was often presented for entertainment rather than just a list of things that happened. So oral news was presented as stories in verse with rhythm, rhyme and melody being important. It's not as efficient at disseminating information and you can't tell lots of people at once and you can't get too much across, but it's better than nothing. It's also of no great surprise that with oral news we don't get large societies. Brian Stock, a historian, noted that oral news, quote, suits small and isolated communities, close quotes, which were described most places 3,000 years ago. In 1954, a small isolated Indian community that only had oral news was found to know of Indian independence, but not the creation of Pakistan or the Cold War. Oral news didn't die out with the writing system. Think of how much news you still get through talking, from gossip to local news events to national news you may not have picked up on. Even in the 18th century in London, the great coffee houses of the day were still flourishing. The first coffee house recorded in Oxford was opened up by Jacob a Jew. That is what his name was registered as, Jacob a Jew. Coffee itself was most likely brought into England by the Jews, who Oliver Cromwell had allowed into the country. The coffee house proved popular with men, women were banned, as they could discuss the news. Only ten years later, the coffee house had a reputation for a drop in scholarly work, as people were spending their day drinking coffee and discussing affairs of Christendom. By the 18th century, the coffee house was almost like targeted news, with many of them in London having a speciality, such as the Stock Exchange Coffee House, and the Tennis Court Coffee House, and the New York Coffee House to discuss the colonies. There were theatre coffee houses and literature coffee houses. The coffee houses began to die out when tea was introduced, while others went back to the pub to get their news, and of course, to get booze. The late 17th century saw the decline of the coffee house as the printed media spread, and with the steam press and telegraph, news could travel in minutes, meaning the coffee house became one of the slowest places to get news. But of course the written news existed before the telegraph. Written news is better in so many ways than its oral predecessor. In an oral society, the idea of asking what the weather was like today is a silly thing to do. But in a literate society, you can write something down as innocent as what happened today in the weather and then analyse it back. From this, we get the ability to see information laid out and the ability to make deep connections from abstract reasoning. What if the weather impacted people's behaviour? What if you could match the weather on various days, turn that into seasons and years, and then work out the best climatic conditions for growing a certain crop? This is all information, and information becomes a lot easier to analyse when it is written down. This is what we mean by an information revolution. It's not just having that information, it's the ability to process and spot patterns and develop theories from that information. It took a long time for news to be seen as news. Originally events would have been recorded for the purposes of organisation and matters of state. Tax revenues and state treaties, deaths of royal family members and other such formalities. Still, written news wasn't really news, more history. The earliest news events were often more historical pieces, such as Herodotus or Thucydides writing about the Peloponnesian War. His prose was deep and analytical and slow, and there is no evidence his writings were distributed. 
He was writing for himself. History and news are antithetical to one another. History is interested in the long term and is not interested in quick takes, the opposite of journalism. News of the kind followed Alexander the Great's conquest of the East with a reliance on the written word to get back to Macedon and Greece as he travelled ever further east. But it was hardly news, more propaganda. And had Alexander instituted a better news network so information could travel from Persia to Greece far quicker, his eventual turning back from India may have been avoided. Reliable news is generally a good indicator of a stable polity and good health. Take note America. Something Rome would too later find out. As Rome began to spread out over Asia Minor, news began ever more to be carried via the written down message. There was no speed advantage, just a more reliable message being able to be transferred with no distortions. Rome's advantage over Alexander's empire was in its ability to send messages over larger distances, something vital when trying to run a large empire. News too began to proliferate as a medium, but done through personal letters, a form which really proliferated during this period. It was not intended for widespread consumption, but it was news for the elites, provided by the elites. A form of peer-to-peer -peer news. In 59 BC, Julius Caesar allowed for the records of the Senate to be made public, and the day's deliberations could be displayed daily. However, none of these survived, as the monks who transcribed the letters of famous Romans never thought it worthwhile to keep a record of the day's events in the Senate. These reports lasted as part of Senate tradition for 280 years, 40 years longer than the US has been in existence. These Senate records were often distributed widely, with both the plebs and aristocracy keen to see what happened. The reports went all over the Roman Empire, and an early postal system was put in place, with 49,000 miles of road across the Roman Empire. Compare this to the current US system of 48,191 miles. It meant that Scotland to the Persian Gulf could be reached in decent time. When Rome collapsed in 476 AD, it would take 1,000 years for information to travel this quickly once again in Europe. The communication of events helped Rome become a more unified polity, with a coherent policy from Rome all the way across the empire. Rome, however, way to the east had a rival for the title of the greatest civilization in antiquity. The Han Dynasty from 202 BC to 221 AD employed an advanced system of delivering news with officials from Manchuria, Mongolia and Korea, all needing to know what was going on at court. With the vast distances involved, writing was the only way to communicate, and at some point with these reports being filed into Tipao or, or a newsletter. Lin Yutang, a writer on journalism in China, calls them the Metropolitan Gazettes. When paper was invented in China, more on that in a future episode, a system of roads and relays was initiated to dispatch the news far and wide. The Han Dynasty collapsed in 221, but in 618 it was rebuilt in the form of the Tang Dynasty, and the Tipao was reissued. It was noted at the time that the Tipao helped to manage such a large empire. The Tipao did not unite China, but it did unite Chinese officials. News would have filtered out to the general public, and the Chinese authorities were informed by one of Confucius's many poor ideas that subjects should be uninformed. With the Song Dynasty 960 to 1279 AD, news became ever more expanded, with 
the intellectuals of the day now reading the De Pau, and government-sponsored and private newsletters being distributed. This was so disliked that by the 12th century, officials called it sensational news, and that they misled the public, something that sounds eerily familiar. There has indeed never been an issue with fake news or biased reporting, or news dominated by the media, or any of the things people talk about now. This has in fact always been the way. The Daily Mail did not invent salacious gossiping, that's been going on for millennia. Only now it's written down and distributed via the internet. Fox News did not invent bias. Do you think when Julius Caesar allowed for the Senate's reporting to be posted outside for all to read, he did not edit and massage what was happening? Of course he did. Our news has always had interference. Only now, with so much more information, we're able to pick holes in media reporting far easier. The internet has allowed us to make links between who controls the media and the news they put out far easier. We should understand that the media is not the problem. The media has never changed. But slowly, over centuries, we do hear more about what we need to know, but not what we're being told. This has always been true, and if you pay for reliable news, you will invariably get it. As the Roman Empire fell, literacy declined and Europe broke apart. It took centuries for European civilization to return anywhere near to the same general level. During the Renaissance, new ideas coupled with a stronger state, weaker Catholic Church, and more ability for ideas to be written down, along with investment in more efficient postal systems, which all led to the growth of written news. The written word became the primary form of communication during this period, as getting reliable news from Constantinople to England via word of mouth was invariably different. This became entrenched in England, as the distinction began to be made between written and oral news. The difference between oral news was thought of as a rumour, and written news became knowledge. Most kings of the day relied on news through diplomats and agents sending news back on European affairs. Hardly fast by our standards, but news of some sort did spread more quickly and more reliably during the mid to late 15th century, with centralised nations like England instituting written news and it being able to spread far more quickly. England under the Tudors, whose command was not as absolute as imagined, began to solidify its rule via the written word. By 1508, Henry VII and Elizabeth's marriage was news sent all over the country by a new type of media, the printed pamphlet. During this period, news information started to become an actual industry. Venetian merchants needed information on grain supplies or military news about the Ottomans. Any information that a spice ship from the East Indies had been sunk would send the price of spices rocketing, while news that harvest was going well would drop the price of grain once again. In the 16th century, diplomacy and commerce pushed news gathering into an actual profession. Many commerce companies asked agents to be correspondents, and they invented their own news agencies. The most successful person at gathering news was Count Philip Fugger. The House of Fugger had lent money to many Catholic monarchs but was in decline from its heyday under Jacob Fugger. Most of the latter-day Fugger reports were listed down and concerned events which financiers and traders would be interested in, and it was the best news money could buy at the time. 
This was not general news either. It was purely for use for the family. The Renaissance in Europe saw the use of the postal services rise with the spreading of news, with newsletters being spread amongst many professionals of the day. The news was focused on cosmopolitan commerce of Europe and matches the rise of the merchant classes through this time. With the wheat traders in Venice, silver merchants in Antwerp, and the financiers at Augsburg. However, the written word, and I mean written, not printed, was still slow and expensive. It would take a great invention to unleash the power of the written word. The invention of the printing press in the middle of the 15th century did not see a radical change quickly. However, it did see a shift. By 1500, there were 250 printing presses in Europe. And we can see the impact of the printing press at the landing of Columbus in the Americas. When the Norsemen under Leif Erikson saw the Americas and landed in Newfoundland, the news of this took perhaps 70 years to reach Denmark and Germany, and it didn't get any further than that. When the Columbus explorations got back to Europe in March 1493, Christopher Columbus instantly spread the news of his discovery. The news spread far quicker than under Leif Erikson. Not that all the news was accurate. One letter in Italy said it took him 16 days to reach the Americas, when it actually took 33, and that Columbus went to a place where people had tales. The printing press arrived in Spain 23 years previous to Columbus's return, and it spread the news very quickly. A letter Columbus wrote to the Spanish court was set in type and then distributed. By May it was a bestseller, and the letter was now being reprinted in Paris and Rome before the end of the year, it was printed in Antwerp, Basel and Florence. The printing press allowed for the rapid spread of not only news, this news would still have been spread, that is for sure, but it allowed for far more detailed news to be spread. The whole of Columbus's letter could now be heard in more detail than just new lands were discovered by an Italian. The actual question of why print was so influential in Western European society highlights one important fact. It was a predominantly Western European revolution. It was slow to penetrate Russia and Eastern Europe, while Muslim resistance to printing had been a block on the Chinese technology reaching Europe. And by this point it worked the other way around too, with Ottoman Sultan Salem I issuing a decree that it would be punishable by death to print a book. This had immediate consequences, with the transmission of information with the first secretary of the Royal Society in London stating, quote, Ye great Turk is an enemy to learning in regard of his subject, because he finds it his advantage to have such a people on whose ignorance he may impose, close quotes. By the 1550s, one Italian writer was claiming that there were now too many books to read, leaving him with no time to actually read them all. Information was one of the most valuable commodities of the age. And like anything else, a great invention should democratise and bring it to all. Despite this, you still need to be able to read. Fake news was seen as a big problem in the early modern period, with what was called news manipulation and disinformation being prevalent. One British diplomat labelled the Turks as an excellent spreader of false news. Any new means of spreading information will also have to deal with misinformation. But very quickly, the use of the printing press for news was taken up by the rulers of Europe, with Henry VII printing and distributing the papal bull confirming his claim to the throne. This was only 12 years after its introduction into England. 
Pamphlets were soon printed on many different areas of news, such as the first war correspondent when Charles VIII invaded Italy. These were then bounded and turned into the first news books. The news books were exactly as they sound they should have been. They were 4 to 28 pages in length and illustrated by large initial letters. There was one problem with the printed media where handwritten news did not have the same problem. It was easy to write a note a few times and pass it on, far harder to smuggle a printing press around and print subversive information. One Puritan attempt in 1588 to 1589 had a printing press travelled across the Midlands in a box and then dismantled. Only when the locals in Lancashire recognised what was in the boxes did they call the authorities. Monarchs and rulers allowed for privileges to print certain information, and Queen Elizabeth was known as an expert in rewarding printers who used the privileges well. Under Tudor rule, one printer was put to death, William Carter, for printing a tax on the Queen's religious politics. Most of the dissident printers at this time were religious in natures. Like now, it's mostly political in nature. Political issues unrelated to religion did not seem to inspire much passion. In England, however, there was a loosening of restrictions in the 17th century, with the growth in the power of Parliament. However, France was not quite in such good shape, with 800 printers being thrown into the Bastille prison from 1600 to 1756. From the earliest time, the printing press was publishing gossip. But this wasn't tabloid gossip. In 1508, Mary, the daughter of Henry VII, was to marry the heir to the Holy Roman Empire. This was the subject of a news book, and the purpose of this was to cement support for the new proposed alliance between England and the Holy Roman Empire. This was hardly the salacious gossip of today, but the details of such events were revolutionary for the time. News of the royals focused on the details not the extravagance of events as they might be in modern times, mostly due to the fact that nobody other than those at court would have seen such spectacular events and trying to convey it in print would prove difficult. The first major geopolitical implication of the printing press was the Reformation. From the time of Peter and Paul in the first century AD to 1054, Christianity was controlled from Rome by the Pope and the Catholic Church. From 1054, many churches in the East broke off over various disputes about various things. However, the Catholic Church still held primacy and absolute power over church matters in the West. Martin Luther was a friar, what we might call now a brother, and a professor at Wittenberg University in Eastern Germany, and he famously posted a list of demands to reform the Catholic Church with the 95 Theses, and he started the radical idea of being able to read the Bible in the vernacular. That's the tongue you natively speak, rather than Latin, as was mandatory. His idea was that everybody should be able to have direct access to God without needing to speak Latin. Events rapidly snowballed, with pamphlets being printed to support these ideas, and thanks to this new medium it became a lot harder to silence these ideas. Following the Protestant Reformation that began in 1517 with Martin Luther, the spread of information became a propaganda tool between Catholics and Protestants. Meanwhile, the Protestants, whose new beliefs allowed them to translate the Bible into the vernacular, increased the literacy rates in Protestant countries. Reading the Bible every day, as many Protestants would do, 
encouraged many to start learning to read so they could read the Bible, and of course, all the written texts too. The printing press also began to be used to spread geopolitical knowledge. The Ottomans in modern-day Turkey were inching their way onto the European continent, starting with Constantinople in 1453, and eventually reaching Vienna in the 16th century. Their defeat at the gates of Vienna marks one of the more important turning points in European history. The Europeans of the time were great fighters, not least compared to the Ottomans, but they could not report on it. Throughout the 16th century, reports went all over Europe, and not just reports, but opinion pieces too. One English pamphlet argued in 1542 that the cruel power of the Turks should be repelled by the Christian people. The battle in 1571 in Cyprus, a Venetian outpost, proved one indication of how the news had been revolutionised by the printed word. The Turks won, but very quickly reports came of Turkish atrocities, and spurred on the Spanish, Venetians and papal powers to merge their fleets to fight back. But what is clear is during this time there was a limited to no public sphere for the dissemination and debate of information. Despite the rise in the printing press, it was still a crime, for example, to discuss in England parliamentary procedure, and politics was not seen as being for the ordinary person. Two things still needed to come to fruition the creation of a new networked infrastructure, and the decline of the old norms. Capitalism played a crucial role in this, as we saw. Money talks, and merchants who paid so much into state coffers could open up new forms of communication, mostly with each other to begin with. Their demand for books, not the Bible, began to grow through the 17th century. Fairs in Lyon and Frankfurt became important hubs while the centres of publishing in Germany, Italy and Holland dominated the production of books in Latin, while England produced books in English. Even back then, the English refused to learn another language. English texts that couldn't be produced in England were produced in Holland, while many Jews went to Amsterdam purely to publish. Slowly, over the 17th century, French, not Latin, became the dominant language as papal powers reduced. This pushed the French language production of books away from France, as they still had strict restrictions, and towards a supranational printing effort. From the early years, publishing focused on books. Slowly though, newspapers, or something similar, began to spring up. More for the aristocracy to begin with, with the first being in Italy, in Venice, and it was handwritten. At the turn of the 17th century, there were weeklies in Basel, Frankfurt, Vienna, Hamburg, Berlin, Amsterdam, and Antwerp. The first London newspaper came from Amsterdam, and in 1622 English publishers were able to publish foreign news. The convergent evolution of the printing press around Western Europe also converged heavily on an early modern period version of capitalism and a capitalist elite. The forerunner of the printed news was in England during the 17th century. Following a ban from 1632 to 1637, the newspaper was legalised but rigorously licensed. But when the British Revolution hit, the entire system broke down, and the ease of conflict saw the expansion of a parliamentary and monarchical press competing with each other. Cromwell's victory saw a reimposition of these bans, but the revolution had changed Parliament into a legislature, not a council. 
The restoration of the Stuarts in 1660 saw them attempt to control information, but it was Parliament who gave them the authority, and they gave out licenses to 20 printers. In 1695, the Licensing Act lapsed, and Parliament argued over replacing it, but it was never replaced. The government didn't mind initially, thinking they could just prosecute somebody for treason. But this was made more difficult after the treason laws were made tighter in 1696, and so the government could only use seditious libel to prosecute. That meant that while you could be prosecuted post-publication, there were no restrictions pre-publishing. After 1695, England saw an increase in news and information. The first daily news appeared in 1702, and by 1712, 20 newspapers were publishing in London every week. Concurrently, politics changed in Britain, meaning that in the early 1600s, men were chosen by acclamation for the House of Commons. But by 1678, electoral contests had become commonplace, with rivals seeking office and trying to gain votes. This was still elite activity. But political competition and the relative freedom of the press was the perfect matchup. Britain would be the first country to undergo an information revolution. The government did go after anybody who published criticisms of it, and during the 18th century was sometimes victorious, but it was a haphazard form of silencing the press. The best the British could do was to impose a stamp tax to make the newspaper an expensive item to buy. Four newspapers folded but many were able to survive. It resulted in not only popular news media, but news media for the elites. In 1704, a Treasury report said the circulation of the newspaper was 43,800, about one for every 133 people in England and Wales. And in the 1790s, Edmund Burke estimated the political reading public at 5% of the population. With a literacy rate of 60%, this wasn't great but many would have the news read out to them, and heard second-hand what happened, and heard stories in taverns. Not quite the modern-day news, but an improvement on what went before. Meanwhile, France didn't see the gradual liberalisation of the media that the English had. The French had a book police, and while censorship was not 100% successful, it did have a large impact on the French state. From the period of 1659 to 1789, 17% of prisoners in the Bastille were sent because of offences related to the book trade. However, despite these superficial differences, there were structural differences in the French state that narrowed the differences and at the same time made them much more profound. To start a periodical in France, you had to have royal permission. There were less periodicals in France than in England, or the North American colonies. In 1750, there were 50 French language periodicals compared to 100 in England and North America. But France had 21 million people, compared to 8 million in England and North America. But the French were also less literate. Yet with a much larger population, there was still a large market for any published material. This was not aimed anywhere near as much at the intelligent and comfortable common man as in England, and was squarely aimed towards the aristocracy. Mid-1750s Britain was still controlled by the old regime types, monarchy, church and the aristocracy. But France was struck a lot more by the Enlightenment, especially amongst the elite. Censorship was relaxed somewhat in France, and the divisions in the French state began to create debate. 
the other issue for the French state, that, with restrictions on its publishing, its geographic location between the highly literate Dutch and Swiss, and the use of French as a lingua franca, meant that much French literature could be published there. Both Voltaire and Rousseau, the two most famed Enlightenment philosophers, had work published there too. It was mostly the Dutch who were publishing this supranational material. Not that there was freedom of press in the Netherlands, but there was little centralised authority to enforce control. And the authorities were not really concerned about material that was to be printed to be published abroad. The most important of these early newspapers was the Gazette de Leiden, which featured reports of ministers, not monarchs, and had reports from across ten cities across Europe, and was mostly neutral and serious. It carried little advertising, and was seen as the newspaper of record of the time. By not being sold much in the Netherlands, it was able to have a large degree of autonomy. These developments occurred alongside the growth of the powerful nation-state, with new systems of finance and banking. The state became more transparent to the public, and the public became more transparent to the state. This isn't to say Europe became an egalitarian place. The early modern period was still exclusive and aristocratic, but things were changing. Nowhere was the news media changing the public square more than in the North American colony. American colonists were obviously heavily indebted to the English, with English newspapers circulating widely after arriving, while much news was reprinted from England in colonial newspapers. In the mid-1700s, the supply lines from England were becoming more reliable, and this included the news, and it allowed colonists to become ever more English. As we talked about in the episode on the United States, by the mid-1750s, there was little sign of a rebellion about to break out. Yet it was the news media that was central to the rebellion. Even Benjamin Franklin had very close links to the newspaper industry, with his older brother James being the editor of Boston's fourth biggest newspaper. Press freedom in colonial America was not absolute, however, with James serving jail time for his satire hitting too close to home. This is where we see the divergence from Britain, with John Peter Zenger getting tried for libel and the judge instructing the jury that he was guilty, but the jury acquitted him all the same. A victory for the Commonwealth system, I believe. The event resulted in the American colony getting their own system to criticise, and they even got expanded press freedom to criticise in the media. This all resulted in the 1765 Stamp Act, which started the pre-revolutionary crisis. The Stamp Act required printers to pay a tax on each sheet of paper they used. In what must have been thought of as one of the stupidest moves of all time, this tax the British imposed would affect printers, lawyers and merchants, the exact people who were most capable of opposing it. Tax a few cotton farmers and nobody would have batted an eyelid. In the weeks before the imposition of the Stamp Tax, the press started a concerted campaign against the Stamp Act. Many newspapers of the time even refused to comply with the Act, and such was the large-scale nature of the American press resistance, there was not a lot the British could do about it. The colonists won, with the removal of the Act a year later. Other attempts at raising money followed with the Townsend Act, and a plan to allow the East India Company to market tea directly to American consumers. With the price advantage the East India Company could raise, 
it awoke colonists once again through this threat. Planned by the editor of the Boston Gazette, the Boston Tea Party was staged in 1773 as a result of this move. The Continental Congress met in 1774 and the first shots were fired. The press involvement in American independence was fundamental and serves notice as to what a free press could actually do. The power of the press has remained with us ever since. Of course, the British could have done in America what the French did in Quebec and banned the printing press altogether to try and keep it French. That America and Boston would be the first place to see a revolution in the Enlightenment should not surprise anybody. With a free press and New England literacy rates in men at 85% in 1760 and around 60% in women, the seeds were already there. There is an argument that while the American Revolution was a revolution, it was not revolutionary. It was merely the continuation of society, but with sovereignty moved from the British Parliament to the American people. The French Revolution, however, was revolutionary in every aspect. Everything changed. There is some debate as to the role of the news media in the French Revolution. Some have seen say that its role was ambiguous. Others say the revolution in print that France saw was more abrupt and electrifying than in America. After the calling of the Estates General in 1788, 10 million pamphlets were printed. 140 new periodicals were started in 1789 with many different viewpoints. The Ancien Régime allowed only 36 print shops in Paris before 1789. But soon after, hundreds of print shops appeared. During the initial breakout of the revolution, the journalists on Louis XVI's payroll were utterly obedient, with the 17th of July, 1789 edition of the Gazette de France not even mentioning the storming of the Bastille that took place a few days earlier. While newspaper circulation reached 300,000 during the revolution, the course of the revolution meant that soon after many of the newspapers were suppressed, and during 1793-1794, one-sixth of active journalists lost their lives. Nevertheless, the revolution was good for the news media, in that any major public crisis always drives people to read and watch the news, which results in more news appearing about it. It's all supply and demand. However, at the time, most French people could not read, so a lot of information was still spread by oral means. As Jürgen Habermas states, quote, The revolution in France created, overnight, what in Great Britain has taken more than a century of steady evolution, the institutions for critical public debate of political matter. Close quotes. So we've covered so far the media in vague general format, without focusing on anything in particular. So we'll leave the French Revolution there and come back to it later as we focus in on one specific form of news media, perhaps the most famous, the newspaper. So rather than talking about the vague spread of the news via the printed word, how did what we call the newspaper come about? During the 17th century, the words journal and gazette were used fairly interchangeably. But what makes something a newspaper? There were many publications which gave away news at varying intervals. But what makes a newspaper a newspaper is the continuing relationship between the reader and the writer. During the early 15th and 16th century, there were four main types of news delivery during this period. 
The first was known as a relation, a single story about a single event. The second was the Coronato, a continuous series of relation news-like stories about a country, like weekly news from Italy or France and the Low Countries. The Dutch were the biggest fans of these. The third type of news was the Diurnal, which provided a weekly account over successive days, and that provided the main news for most people around Europe. The Diurnal would only appear when there was news to report, not like a newspaper. The fourth type of newspaper was the Mercury, which looked like a book and were popular in the centres of trade of Europe. These Mercuries were the first signs of journalism, with the writer telling the message in his own words. Then came the Intelligentsia, which was more formal and more official than the Mercury. This Intelligentsia began to slowly cover more and more events, but still worked on supply and demand. The 17th century saw more development in print and the infrastructure to get a more daily source. With the 17th century we see a network of postal routes, printing capacity and distribution, and, perhaps most crucially, we begin to have more interesting events to report on. The fallout of the Protestant Reformation resulted in much religious conflict in the 17th century that drove a demand for news, while the growth of cities like Amsterdam, Paris and London all reached a quarter of a million, it let a concentration of people from different backgrounds to intermingle together. The growth of the merchant class made what used to be the state's business the business now of merchants. Thomas Archer, who produced perhaps the first modern newspaper, was inspired, quote, to place all the occurrences all together, to muster the news which belongs to the same place, as it were unto one army, close quotes. The printing press, however, had seen little development, and it was only a mild improvement of Gutenberg's original. In the early 17th century, a printing house could produce 2,500 to 3,000 copies of a two-sheet publication in a day. Printing news was far preferable to printing Bibles, as these were huge books requiring a lot of time and capital investment. They needed to be well produced. You could shoot off a day's worth of news in a slapdash manner and get a quick return on your money. The move from sporadic to regular publication happened quite quickly especially for the standards of the day. First, it went to regular monthly newsletters to weekly, and then three editions per week in the space of 15 years. It was of course in the Netherlands where this shift first took place. In places of great trade, the need for news was vital. By the start of the 17th century, what we now think of as the newspaper began to be developed. The political shift that resulted in news spreading quicker may not have been immediately apparent but it was huge. It was said news of the fall of Constantinople took one month to reach Venice and took three months to reach the rest of Europe. Now there was competition to get news first. True competition almost always leads to improvement. The British are avid readers of newspapers, or were, with millions of readers per day and even more for the Sunday newspaper. The newspaper is a status symbol as the exact newspaper you read will tell you something about yourself. Read the working class Sun, the middle class Liberal Guardian, or the upper middle class Times. The newspaper in Britain is also nationwide, one of the few big countries to boast of nationwide news. There are local newspapers, but the newspaper industry is dominated by the nationals, such as Britain's centralised nature. Furthermore, the power of the British Empire 
at the height of the newspaper boom will give us an insight into just how powerful an industry it is in Britain. The study of newspapers is a modern phenomenon. They used to be looked at purely for archival reasons, but now they're starting to be looked at in their own historical importance. In Britain, as in most places, war results in a vast change in technology and results in demands for things that had never previously existed. The British revolutions of the mid-17th century had just that effect on the desire for news in Britain. It resulted in the collapse of censorship and, with the conflict between Parliament and the King, the account of the fracas between the two institutions led to more accounts of the ongoings and it made for riveting reading. There were still the obvious prohibitions against such reporting, but the possible profits made it a worthwhile undertaking. From the first news book of 1641 to 1644, there were a dozen weekly news books in London alone. It had a profound impact on both the people reading the books and the industry itself. The news book changed through this period. At first it was merely a sober and dry account, trying to find a balance between Parliament and the Crown before the conflict descended into fighting, and newspapers became propaganda for one of the two sides. 300 newsbooks were released between 1640 and 1650, but they were still in a precarious position. It was intensely competitive, and there were still some authorities who had control, something seen when the victor, Oliver Cromwell, banned the newsbook. The restoration of the monarchy in 1660 continued strong control of the press, with the amount of printers restricted to Oxford and Cambridge, a stationers' company in London. The government had powers to search any house suspected of having, quote, any books or papers to be printed, bound or stitched, close quotes. Surprisingly enough, this resulted in the newspaper industry falling off a cliff. There was news, but it was official government news full of official proclamations of statements and foreign news. And of course, with it being a British newspaper, there was a lot of talk about the weather. Newspapers ran adverts offering plots of land in the New World, while the papers of the time also had the innovation of double-column stories, so you no longer had to turn the page to read a story. In 1679, the original Licence Act ran out. There was an attempt to try and get it reinforced, but that failed. Despite this, the stationers of London imposed an ineffective system of suppression of any other media. But with little legislative power, their system of censorship once again started to break down. The Act should have been renewed, but Charles prorogued Parliament to stop a bill allowing Catholics to take the throne from passing without realising that this bill needed to be renewed. From this, several unlicensed publications sprung up. However, with James the Catholic becoming king, he reintroduced the press monopoly, only for it to be swept away once again by the Glorious Revolution of 1688. The new monarch, the Dutch William of Orange, had the security to allow for greater press freedom. Something, being Dutch, he probably thought wasn't the worst idea in the world. In 1695, all licensing acts died in Britain, and Britain, for the first time, kind of, had permanent press freedom. Following this, the newspapers saw exponential growth. By 1709, there were 18 newspapers regularly published in London. 
the most important of which was the daily current. It was a single sheet with news on one side and ads on the reverse. Ran by William Buckley, he was keen to get as factual information as possible. Buckley also proved it was possible to make a profit from a newspaper which could draw in more talented writers, such as Daniel Defoe. Much of this news went to the coffee houses we discussed earlier. In 1709, there were only 800 copies of the Daily Current printed, but each copy was read by 20 people. And they would then pass on the news they read to even more people. One of the most popular magazines was the Spectator magazine, which is not the same magazine by the same name that's published today, but it does draw its name from it. The Spectator was perhaps the origin of modern journalism. The coffeehouse's favourite magazine, The Spectator was pushed by its middle-class clientele to publish essays on things like society, literature and politics. The Spectator developed the essay form and the editorial or leader, which became the most important part of the newspaper after that. By reaching large swaths of the population, not just the gentry, the newspaper claimed to be speaking for the general population. Daniel Defoe, one of the earliest journalists, thought by some only to be a polemicist, was in fact one of the inventors of journalism, with Andrew Marr saying Defoe wrote, quote, excellent clear uncluttered reports full of relatively short sentences of plain description, close quote. While Defoe was also one of the first to believe in eyewitness reporting, often going to the things he would report on. The development of an English press was viewed in Paris or Milan as dangerous and unreliable information. The whole drive of the media, it was thought, was political partisanship. In France, meanwhile, the state had official supervision of all press reports, and while there was a variety of press, it was monitored. There was press criticism of the king, for example, but it was in newspapers smuggled in from Holland. However, to say that there would never be any restrictions on the British press was untrue. The first Stamp Act in 1712 meant a tax increase of 800% on newspapers. Because only the sheet of paper was taxed at a basic rate, it meant that newspapers became huge sheets, especially at peak news times. It led to the invention of the broad sheet newspaper. The tiny print and huge sheet meant that newspapers had to fill all of this space. The newspapers employed news galleries to find stories around alehouses or gin shops which could then be printed in the paper. As the 18th century developed, it encountered the Enlightenment, which drove the need for rational discussion and information. Newspapers began to be more systematically organised with subtitles such as London, Port News and Ireland proliferating. Towards the middle of the century, some newspapers had circulations of 10,000 or so, making advertising an important source of revenue. However, despite the growth in importance, there was one area that was still lacking. It was illegal to report on parliamentary business. Newspapers dealt with this in different ways. Some resorted to allegorical stories or pseudo-historical accounts, with several newspapers reporting of the ongoings of the Senate of Lilliputia, where the speakers had Roman names or, or anagrams of the real parliamentarians' names. During the 1760s, some newspapers began to cover debates verbatim, with no allegory. These were fined and censured, but the public continued to demand more and more information about what was going on in Parliament. And due to this pressure, in 1771, the ban was overturned, though reporting was still restricted, and no notes were allowed to be taken inside Parliament. 
Furthermore, the local press in Britain was still a common feature despite the more centralised nature of the country. They often copied material straight from the London papers in the beginning. As local papers grew too, so did their ambitions. Early local newspapers were based in places like Bristol and Norwich, the second and third biggest cities of their time. This, remember, before the changes the Industrial Revolution would unleash. Over in Europe, they were having a vastly different time with the news media. They could see what was going on in Britain with a supposed anarchical press, and most of Europe was a lot more absolutist than in Britain. In Prussia, Frederick the Great effectively censured the press by himself. With the French Revolution, the newspaper business was thrown into radical change. In Britain, the ruling classes attempted to stop any chance of rebellion. With the 1776 Declaration of Independence, it gave its citizens the right to free publication, something almost unheard of. Britain had a limited system of press freedom, with all the informal barriers it presented, while Sweden legally had a free press, but it was practically ignored. Only the Dutch had the freedom to cover foreign news. The subsequent 25 years, from 1789, saw limited development of the press as the French Revolution, Revolutionary Wars, and then the Napoleonic Wars dominated, and wartime restrictions could be put in place. Of course, the press still existed and reported on action, but it became a very statist form of communication. For my last birthday, I received a gift of a collection of newspaper reports from the Napoleonic era. And so, I would like to read out one entry in particular from the Times of London. Quote, London, Thursday, November 7th, 1805. The official account of the late naval action, which terminated in the most decisive victory that has ever been achieved by British skill and gallantry, will be found in our newspaper today. That the great triumph, great and glorious as it was, has been dearly bought. That such was the general opinion was powerfully evinced in the deep and universal affliction with which the news of Lord Nelson's death was received. The victory created none of those enthusiastic emotions in the public mind which the success of our naval arms have in every former instance produced. There was not a man who did not think that the hero of the Nile was too great a price for the capture and destruction of twenty sail of French and Spanish men of war. No bulletins of public transport, no demonstrations of public joy, marked this great and important event. The honest and manly feeling of people appeared as it should have done. They felt an inward satisfaction at the triumph of their favourite arms. They mourned with all the sincerity and poignancy of domestic grief their slain hero. That was just the first paragraph. The news report goes on like that for another 21 paragraphs, and it also includes a poem. With Europe being a bit boring during this period, we'll move over to the United States. This new country of America was hardly a cohesive unit. I mean, it's debatable whether it is at present, but that's for another day. After independence, which was precipitated largely by a free press, it took a while still for America to get full journalistic independence. The Alien and Sedition Laws in 1798 highly restricted the political movements of the Democratic Republican Party during this time. When Jefferson took office, he used the Sedition Act in 1805 to attack opposition papers. When the capital moved to Washington in 1800, a set of newspapers were set up, and a journalistic class sprung up too. 
and with the swelling of the population of the country by 1930, a vigorous competition in newspapers had sprung up. America had by far the biggest daily readership. In 1835, America had 1,265 newspapers and 90 dailies, compared to only 369 and 17 dailies in Britain, despite Britain still having the larger population. The reason given for this was the lack of stamp duty and the detailed and numerous post offices that allowed a far greater and quicker mail distribution system and dissemination of information in the United States. The US's ability to get information was also increased by the increase in literacy rates, especially in the North, where school enrollment went from 37% to 60%, even if you include the black population, which of course you should. The United States' educated population beat that of Britain and France and was second only to Prussia. There was a rapid increase in women who could learn to read and write, quickly pushing the Northern European states to a higher literacy standard than in the South. The ability for women to communicate increased as their ability to educate their children did too. Once you can read, you can teach yourself anything in theory. During the second half of the 19th century, Europe would catch up with American growth in education. The time between an event happening and it being reported also decreased in the United States. The Lewis and Clark famous expedition of the Louisiana Purchase returned back on September 23, 1806 but took until November the 6th, 1806, for that news to be published. However, in 1844, the New York Herald asked, quote-unquote, what has become of space? First the Pony Express, then steam-powered ships, then the railroad cut times for news to disseminate. The railroad station became the most important organ in the modern communication network. And then Samuel Morse demonstrated the first telegraph line, cutting communication times almost instantaneously. Now for the first time, yesterday's news could now be published. This had huge political consequences, with a closer bond between the states of the Union. This spread of news was only underlined with a permanent cable under the Atlantic in 1866. The first real event to benefit from this was the Franco-Prussian War, news of which was eaten up by American readers. Meanwhile, print changed too, making it far cheaper to produce newspapers and books in America then before with daily newspapers in the United States going from 6 cents to 1, and novels from $2 to 25 cents. In Britain, a book would have cost $7. This was a mini-revolution in itself. It resulted in the penny press, and the dying novel being named for their low prices. A wave of interrelated technologies allowed for the cheapness of printing to continue. Advances in papermaking and printing allowed for far quicker printing techniques and made things cheaper. From being able to make 250 impressions per hour to the hoe-type revolving machine of 1846, which could make 12,000 impressions per hour. It all contributed to making printing much cheaper and quicker. The initial use of this printing press was from evangelical Christians who could start giving away Bibles as they were now so cheap, but quickly this moved towards more commercial opportunities. The cheapness of this new press meant that newspapers could sell to a wider group of people, including the working classes. They could also be advertised to, meaning that these new papers would have a wide influence over people's lives. The distribution model changed too, with these new papers becoming smaller and able to be read on the move and sold to hawkers who would then sell them on the streets. These penny papers were the first to develop a true press 
and publish extensively the news, local, national and international. And because they stopped advertising, it also cemented for the first time national consumer markets. The development of this market, especially in the north, resulted in a public sphere appearing, with people now able to write for a living and American novels being able to gain critical currency amongst the Anglo-American elite, who often still looked towards the old country for culture. It was also in this period when a radical press started to be promulgated in the United Kingdom, with the Northern Star newspaper the best-selling newspaper in the middle of the 19th century. It was known for promoting male suffrage, and from 1831 to 1836, 560 newspapers started up. These were often called the Great Unstamped Press. With a circulation of 50,000 every week, it was read by up to a million. But it brought the government into conflict with the press, where much of the press simply did not pay the stamp duty. And government attempts to imprison people for this didn't work either, as there was a seeming unlimited supply of people willing to go to jail for their right to a free press. As a result, the stamp duty was relaxed, but what started to eat away at the more radical press was the need for more expensive equipment to continue to keep up. While changing economic circumstances with large wage rises and a consensus reached between the workers and capitalists of a more social contract type situation which helped to reduce the radicalism in the working classes at the time. Modern forms of communication also allowed trade unions to spring up, removing the clear need for such a radical press. English ideas of newspapers started to spread throughout the colonies too, with the Indian press beginning in the 1780s with the Bengal Gazette and the Times of India in 1838 as the Bombay Times. In Australia the printing press arrived in 1787, but it took until 1803 for the first papers, with the Sydney Gazette and New South Wales Advertiser appearing. By 1848, there were 11 dailies in Australia. Much of it was reprints from London papers, but in 1861, the first cable being laid across to Australia gave Australia a much more interconnected news market. In New Zealand, the first paper was founded only three months after the first immigrant ships in 1839. In Hong Kong, the government and gazette appeared in 1841, ran by both the administrators and trade interests to solidify the city colony as an official trading outpost. By the middle of the 19th century, there was the start of the revolution in the American newspaper that would have serious consequences, especially in the Civil War. The advances of the printing press and the wire services meant that clipping some other papers and reprinting them was not going to win you new customers as specialist agencies provided these clippings to cheap and to all. The Civil War resulted in the American papers investing in deep and enormous organisations to get the news from the front first. Reporting became a highly skilled operation and turned the newspaper into an operation of dozens of experts in their field investigating and finding out news. One of the themes in this series is the interrelation between inventions and from the 1840s a new technology was to revolutionise the spread of information. We'll get into more detail on the electrical telegraph in a future episode, but it suddenly and almost overnight shrunk the world like nobody had seen before. Steam power had only just begun to quicken the travel of boats, but the telegraph meant that information didn't need to be carried over transport, it could go through cables. In Europe, these cables were owned by the state, 
but in the US it was owned and operated by private enterprise. There had been a change in speed of information before the electrical telegraph, with New York City to Charleston being 20 days on average for news to travel between them in 1794, falling to 5.5 days in 1841, and Washington to Boston falling from 18 days in 1790 to 2.8 days in 1841. The rise of the telegraph, most advanced and best used in America, resulted in the cooperation of six or seven newspapers clubbing together to share the expenses of new telegraph reports they were getting. This joint action allowed the New York papers to avoid duplication and gave them an economic advantage over the excluded papers. By the early 1850s, the New York Associated Press, as it was dubbed, provided two columns of major news to the dailies. The New York Associated Press could get news far faster than non-members. By the 1860s, the telegraph was an established medium for communication. It was too expensive for the ordinary person, but in finance, business, state affairs and news organisations, it was vital. In the Civil War, it was vital to Lincoln's running of the war. The telegraph resulted in the first national medium of communication. In Britain, there were three major telegraph companies, allowing only Julius Reuter to use the wire service. But in 1865, a group of newspapers led by the Manchester Guardian made a move to set up their own wire service. In 1868, they set up the Press Association, which supported the nationalisation of the Telegraph in Britain, which took place in 1870. In many countries, the wire services were private companies, but towed the government line, so they were effectively state-run news services. Britain was a dominant player, with the Press Association supplying domestic news, Reuters dominating the foreign news wire, and the Times using its own foreign correspondence. Reuters was to later enter the American market as the only wire service offering foreign news to the American public, and being a British company and heavily reliant on the British state, it gave the British establishment some leverage over American news. During the Victorian period, the idea of the media taking on the role of the fourth estate began. The idea of estates goes back to the medieval period with the three great estates of the realm, the clergy, the nobility and the commoners, which were the three great groups of people who made up political life in the medieval period. The addition of the fourth estate really began in the mid-1850s, with the times forcing the collapse of the British government in 1851 over the coup of Louis Napoleon showing the new power of this fourth estate, something that was only underlined by the Crimean War, with the first full-time war correspondence and his descriptions of the charge of the Light Brigade, one of the most infamous defeats in British military history. The Times report goes something like this, quote, The noblest army ever sent from these shores has been sacrificed to the greatest mismanagement, incompetency, lethargy, aristocratic hauteur, Official indifference, favour routine, perverseness and stupidity reign, revel and riot in the camp before Sebastopol, in the harbour of Balaclava, in the hospital of Scutari, and how much nearer home we dare not venture say. This one journalist, whose even more powerful reports were not published, as the editor at the time did not want to be accused of a lack of patriotism, led to a vote of no confidence in the government. The news media became a powerful force in civil society, and also in high politics, able to shape the views of the masses and politicians alike. While competition became ever fiercer for information, 
This was partly offset by the use of the wire services to provide news through the telegram. But it was events like the Franco-Prussian War which drove the newspaper industry, especially in the United Kingdom, to become more and more competitive. What this did was grow the quality of the newspaper and turn it into an industry with machinery capital and management surrounding the paper, but the competition pushed papers more and more towards sensationalism. American newspapers, owing to the lack of tax restrictions and earlier adoption of technological innovations, had always been ahead of the British newspapers. British newspapers were dull and boring, with little sport or humour. However, when W.T. Stead took over the Pall Mall Gazette, this was all to change. He introduced the headline in all different sizes, depending on how important it was, and even went to jail when he said how easy it was to still buy a slave in London, he went out and bought a slave. Stead was mocked for new journalism and the demon of sensationalism, but it wasn't long before the Times was copying these new innovations. The most famous of these sensationalist papers, and the most significant, was the Daily Mail, which was the first paper with a circulation of a million. The investment needed to pump out that number and the economies of scale involved, coupled with the education reforms in the late 19th century, resulted in these publications becoming mass market. There were now a series of local and national papers in Britain. In the United States, with a potentially large readership and not wanting to narrow their audiences, newspapers took the editorial line that gave little support to anybody and adopted a position of dislike and scorn to politicians, farmers, foreigners, trade unions, pretty much anything. Newspapers also became the source of much muckraking, with many local papers concentrating on the misdeeds of local officials, while national papers built stunts like the journey of H.M. Stanley to find Dr. Livingstone in Africa, or the raising of the funds to build the Statue of Liberty. The best of these newspaper editors was Joseph Pulitzer, who came up with enticing headlines and, in 1898, advocated war with Spain to such an extent that the one million readers were enticed by the excitement of it rather than the politics. To read the New York World was to have a ringside seat to the decisions of the day. During the last years of the 19th century, the scope of papers changed too, with the rise of comic strips in the world. One of these, Shantytown, whose main character, the Yellow Kid, provided the name for this whole period of journalism, the Yellow Press. This new press, during the latter part of the Victorian period, became extraordinarily powerful. It was the papers that were the conduit to political power. In Britain, the co-opting of papers looks today like corruption. The Conservative Central Office in 1914 provided nearly half the money to buy the Observer newspaper while many journalists became politicians and vice versa. Journalists after the First World War were suddenly given knighthoods. During the 1920s and 1930s in Britain, while popular history may remember it as being drab as anywhere else in the world, in Britain they saw longer holidays, shorter working hours and higher wages, as the newspapers provided a feel-good factor as the world started to implode around Britain. This may have had something to do with the reduced role of current affairs stories in the newspapers, as gossip, human interest stories and entertainment flourished. This may have had a large role in the support of appeasement, as Geoffrey Dawson, the editor of the Times, wrote in 1937 that he did, quote, his utmost night after night to keep out of the paper anything that might hurt the German government's susceptibilities, close quotes. 
In Britain, in the 1930s, there were circulation wars between the great million-selling newspapers, all competing with the new BBC radio service, which had a somewhat negative effect on sales, but increased the reliability of the papers by keeping them honest. The newspapers during the 1930s surely have to be seen as one of the reasons for the policy of appeasement and the fascists. That the newspaper industry could lie to a population can be seen in the application crisis of 1936 over King Edward VIII, where the king's relationship with an American divorcee went unreported until only a few weeks before the official announcement, despite the incident being fully reported in foreign newspapers. Wholesalers even censured imported news such as Time by cutting pages out. The news was eventually outed by the New York Post, not the main national papers. In a similar way, the press supported Chamberlain and appeasement. The rise of fascism had been reported, but slowly, almost as an afterthought. There was little criticism of the Nazi party, and critics of appeasement such as Churchill had their newspaper column withdrawn or restricted. After the war and press censorship in the United Kingdom was relaxed, with the press facing another challenge, television. Firstly coming from the BBC and then ITV, the first commercial TV channel in Britain. And it was during the 1960s several newspapers started to go bankrupt. In the United States, faced with new similar competition, there was a concentration of the business, with newspaper chains being used to cut down on costs. By the late 1970s, the 12 largest newspaper chains controlled 38% of the total circulation, while newspapers began to set up local TV and radio stations in order to keep control of their markets. In Britain, in the second half of the 20th century, the big issue was with the emergence of the tabloid newspaper. In 1969, Australian Rupert Murdoch bought the Sun newspaper, and very quickly it overtook the Mirror to be the biggest selling newspaper in circulation. Very quickly, other tabloid papers were launched. Promotions, gimmicks and gifts were given away with papers, and huge TV advertisement campaigns were launched. The success of the Sun was its move away from traditional news and towards sports, celebs and world stories. It was news, but it wasn't much related to what was going on in areas of state. The Sun was designed to give people what they wanted, with surgical precision. It was for the post-war, younger, more tech-savvy and consumerist market. It was an advertiser's dream. Previous newspapers were crumpet crime and cricket. Now, it was sex, sex, sex. The page three model, a fully topless girl, was featured on the third page of the newspaper, and Murdoch insisted the words win, free and sex had to appear as much as possible. By 1987, one in three newspapers sold in Britain was owned by Murdoch. Tabloid newspapers were rampant. The employee of Kelvin Mackenzie further shifted the tabloids towards a dumbing down of the British media. The 1990s saw the modern decline of the traditional newspaper. 24-hour news, the internet and opinion journalism flourished, while news agencies, public relations companies and official sources increased their supply of news to the main news outlets. This has undoubtedly led to an increase in pseudo-events and pseudo-facts. Not fake news, truth, but manipulated truth is far more prevalent and dangerous than pure falsehoods. Furthermore, there is a decline in trust in the newspaper, which started in the late 1980s, with local news seeing the biggest drops in circulation. While there has been a slow movement 
towards general revulsion of tabloid tactics, especially amongst the young. Perhaps the first event in this was the Sun's reporting of the Hillsborough tragedy. The Sun's previous disregard for fact over sensationalism had previously been taken with a pinch of salt, but when it angered the families of the 96 dead from the tragedy by victim blaming, the paper was boycotted by most in Liverpool. Further events, such as the reporting on Princess Diana from the 1980s to her death added to it. Following this, there was more events of tabloid excesses gone too far. Supermodel Naomi Campbell was pictured leaving a Narcotics Anonymous meeting in 2001, which established that newspapers could be sued for misuse of private information, and it led to a rush of legal claims against the tabloids. Most famous was the phone hacking scandal, which did serious damage to the newspapers, and is another nail in the long and terminal decline of the tabloid. Nobody young reads or trusts the tabloids anymore. In 2020, of course, everything is online. That's where people read the newspaper on a screen. The Guardian was the lead in this, launching in 1999 and becoming the most widely read newspaper. And in 2006, it published stories first on its website before being published in print. This was, of course, great for us. Free news of decent quality. And as soon as it was written, it could be published. But it didn't do much to the newspaper's business model. The great change now, however, is online news not always being written by humans anymore. Printed word, or the digital word, is being written more and more via algorithm. The Associated Press, now 170 years old, is a still a newswire service for much of the world. You still pay a fee and the AP will allow you to publish a piece of news that it has written. It's far more economic than every newspaper writing their own version. Every quarter, automated algorithms write thousands of news articles about corporate earnings, about 200 words long, with about 3,700 pieces written every quarter. It enables a far broader level of coverage and scale. Algorithms and automation is changing the news media. This section is following on from the printed news to look at how news is increasingly written and how our printed news will change. News is now being managed far more differently than just 20 years ago. What automation is doing now is equivalent to the introduction of the telegraph. The entire news system is changing. The general idea of journalism 2.0 is not to have journalists replaced, but to have them spend their time on more important thematic work that analyses the news rather than just relaying it. Furthermore, rather than allowing interpretive truth, automation allows for ever more information to spread and allows for better, hopefully, interpretation of the facts. How has automation and algorithms changed the news? Well, firstly, there is the mixing of the two. The Panama Papers was 2.6 terabytes of data. 400 journalists worked on it, with 4,700 news articles based off this data. They managed this by automating what they could. In this case, they converted millions of documents into digital text and allowed the data to be searched more easily. Data is just information. It comes in qualitative or quantitative forms, numeric or non-numeric. And, as in any other research area like science, once that information is validated, synthesised and contextualised, it becomes knowledge. It makes it much easier to produce knowledge that might be useful to journalists to find or analyse patterns. 
As more and more information is contained not in coffee houses where people gossip or in press releases or parliamentary reports, but in data, journalistic data mining will be vital in uncovering more and more stories. Data mining is the process of discovering new and valuable information from data sets. By using deep learning that allows for algorithms to learn patterns and work out what might be newsworthy, and with occasional human intervention, it can be used to find information that might have otherwise slipped through the net. Furthermore, data coming from user-generated content and data mining will help by pointing out what areas of data journalists should be looking at and by evaluating its credibility. So in what ways will data mining help journalists in future? Firstly, by detecting surprises and anomalies or changes in data. One example is a report by BuzzFeed. By analysing betting markets and tennis players losing games, journalists were able to identify where there was an unusually large swing in betting markets. Once a journalist is aware of a newsworthy pattern, they can scale their ability to monitor or track that pattern. Using this method, BuzzFeed were able to track FBI planes involved in surveillance, and Ukrainian journalists were able to identify illegal amber mining. Data mining has also allowed for journalists to prove associations in data, best used in the old journalistic maxim, follow the money. Using this technique, it enabled organised crime investigators to link a US electronics company that was smuggling components to a banned Russian defence company. While the New York Times was able to build a custom data mining system to make the task of campaign financing more traceable. With so much user-generated content, it's vital for journalists to be able to detect spikes in eyewitness testimony quicker and with more reliability to get the full picture. Reuters have built their own social monitoring tool, Tracer, that will knit together many of these data mining techniques to feed into an interactive interface for journalists. It can detect events by grouping tweets about the same thing and score it on newsworthiness and then rate how likely it is to be truthful. It goes through about 23 million tweets a day and turns that into 16,000 events and about 6,600 newsworthy events. It detected the 2016 Brussels airport bombing before local media, and six minutes before a standard Reuters report, and ten minutes before the BBC. Imagine if you're a financial investor. This could make you a killing in the stock market. Fact-checking, too, is increasingly being done by algorithms. Obviously, a lot of this is still done by manual means, but computing power is slowly being introduced to make this process quicker. Claim spotting will be the first, that is, detecting claims that have already been proven correct or incorrect and can be fact-checked by computers by searching for similar claims in the past. With most national news outlets having comments enabled on some or most articles, this raises many issues too. Often it could be useful for debate and to interact while also building brand loyalty. But of course there are issues between vitriol and hate, so moderating is important too. Now data mining classifiers are able to distinguish between good and bad comments with the Washington Post and New York Times both using auto-moderation. The Washington Post received 1.5 million comments every month, of which 70,000 were reviewed by moderators using guidance from, as they call it, the ModBot. The next development of computing in journalism is in automated content. In Sweden, football is huge, as it is in most of the world. One website, Klaxpark, covers every local game online. 
In a tiny part of the east of Sweden, this website will cover all the games down to the divisions where it is just local or amateurs playing. To cover all the games, they are mostly written by algorithms, in short 100 word pieces. About who scored, and the history of the fixture, and the knock-on effects for the league. If something unique happens in one of these games, then this can be added in manually. This provided breadth of coverage that would never have taken place without automation. So how does this automation work? The basic idea is to take data and structure it into written text, which is referred to as natural language generation. Depending on which model is used, that is how complex the articles will be. But essentially the algorithm determines how to relate certain data sets into language and then how the programmer wants the information to come across. Example, explain or persuade. With a weather report, it just explains the basic data, whereas sports needs more angles like a narrative or a performance level review. The advantage of this system is obvious. It can greatly expand the scope of production of news and what websites can offer you. Furthermore, the speed of an automated system means that for financial markets, speed is a necessity just like it was hundreds of years ago for traders. Automated content isn't perfect, and the quality still has a long way to go until it reaches human levels, with news reports likely to be repetitive. So is this dangerous? Is using algorithms to report news and help journalists a bad thing? Well, algorithms are inert. What matters is their design. Think of that phrase people say when a kid does something bad and they say, don't blame the kid, blame the parents. It's exactly that type of thing with algorithms. Furthermore, this is a disruptive technology. Either you get on it or you fall behind. Algorithms will speed up, scale up and personalise content, hopefully for the greater good of readers, journalists, politics and civil society. It's going to see a bigger change than the move to online journalism. It will be the biggest shake-up in the news media since at least the introduction of the telegraph cable may be bigger. Journalists will need to be as much data analysts or AI researchers as journalists. During the 19th century, we saw newspapers becoming national entities. The Times, The Guardian, New York Times, due to The Telegraph as they were able to get more news quicker. The best algorithmic newspapers will allow for international newspapers. They will be able to report in more and more depth on more and more things. Perhaps The Guardian will develop an algorithm that can watch and analyse sport. Maybe it won't be used much for high-level cricket, where humans will still write reports, but it will be able to report on everything from Indian regional cricket to West Indian cricket, from Nigerian youth football to minor Chinese snooker tournaments, from local baseball games to high school American football. This coverage and depth will result in several newspapers becoming global news organisations, more than they are at the moment. They will be both local and international, meaning you can get all your news and commentary from one news organisation, and you won't need to go to one place for local news, another for national, another for financial, and another for sport, or whatever sector you're interested in. It will all be in one place. With that, it's time to leave the printed or online news source and move towards a more multimedia view of the media. We looked at the radio and its invention in a previous episode. But for the first 20 years of the 20th century, its use was limited. The First World War limited its use for civilians, as the world still thought of it as an extension of the telegraph. People knew it was able to reach places where cables could not, but people couldn't see the clear profit to be made out of this. 
until the Marconi Company started to make experimental transmissions in 1920. While in the United States, the Vice President of Westinghouse noticed a department store advertising for radio sets and realised that it could be a consumer market if there was a regular service. On the 2nd of November 1920, KDKA in Pittsburgh went on air for the results of the presidential election. During the next 11 months, only five more licences were granted, but in 1922 there were 500 stations licensed and radio took off. The New York Times noted in 1922 that the radio was the most popular amusement in America. Radio journalism quickly followed the newspaper, with the same journalists often being news, with the same dispassionate voice often being news, but with people listening, not reading. So the sentence structure had to be much shorter. As you heard when I read out the extract from the French loss at Trafalgar, newspapers were long-winded. It wasn't quite this bad in the early 20th century, but that news you read now is more akin to the earliest radio news as it developed. The perhaps most important event that made people realise that radio was a journalistic force were the Pearl Harbour attacks. With no evening papers on a Sunday, it would have taken to Monday for the news to filter out to all of America. However, the news was picked up by a news network before it got on the wires, meaning radio had the exclusive news. The radio followed this up in the Second World War with it being fought over the radio. The radio in America could pick up the Battle of Britain, and other journalists were able to take their microphones onto the battlefield. Millions listened in, and the war news could spread almost instantly. People listened in to Roosevelt's fireside chat to hear him talk. In the 1950s, the growth of the television led many to leave radio for it. Though the radio managed to survive through narrow casting, this specific targeting at certain demographics, like the young, one of the reasons for the growth of rock and roll. This continued becoming a station of hard rock, soft rock, oldies and top 40 stations of the later 20th century. But the real medium of non-printed news became the television. Obviously, we will be looking at the television in the future. But the television news began in the United States in a tiny New York experimental audience in 1941, with two 15-minute newscasts a day. The problem early television producers faced was how to fill the screen. The first attempt was Richard Hubble's standing and pointing at a map of Europe. But the picture quality was so poor that it was hard to even see Hubble or the map of Europe. By 1949, there were scattered amounts of early TV stations dotted across the country, with newscasts being the talking head shots of newsreaders. Where there was film of the news events, these were supplied by newsreel companies, and early television journalism was seen as a mix of movie newsreels and radio news. Even though the early quality was not great due to the limited technology, viewers were captivated to see a submarine christening, dedication of a dam or a beauty contest. Television journalism possessed the power to recreate the sights and sounds of events. It showed something that the best radio journalists could only hint at. By the 1950s and 1960s, the television became vital for all. CBS and NBC produced their own film reports. And camera crews were stationed in the larger cities, and then film was flown to New York by plane. The events of the time, the political conventions, the earlier space program and the early civil rights movement were what most Americans would watch on their TV news. The 1950s saw the coronation of Elizabeth II in Britain, 
leading to a rush for televisions to watch the momentous event. Often there was only one family rich enough to afford a television on a street, so the entire street would fit around the tiny front room to watch the coronation. In the United States, the first great television event was the 1960 US presidential election, shown by the fact that Kennedy defeated Nixon on television, while Nixon beat Kennedy in the minds of listeners on the radio, but still lost the overall election. Television's power continued with the assassination of Kennedy, the civil rights protests, while the Vietnam War was shown largely in sterile reports, but you could glean from the television what a horrific war it was. The counterculture was perpetuated by television, from the wild looks to the music and dancing, television was the best way to cover it. In more modern times, the proliferation of news channels led to the tabloidization as people were no longer fascinated by the sheer ability to see the news. They needed to feel it more. Television news in the tabloid newspaper show a lot in common, with television favoring looks over substance. Something the newspaper doesn't need to. Yet the result of the constant news over television is the effect it had on newspapers, which don't need to report news as you've likely already heard about it, or seen it on the television. A lot of journalists started to report news as though you mostly knew what happened, and when you read the paper, it was more analysis of what happened, not actually what happened. Journalism in any medium is at its best when the most valuable commodity, more valuable than gold or oil, is given away freely or cheaply and in good quality. Information drives action in any quantity. The information that you have no fruit or vegetables will drive you to the nearest supermarket to pick something up. News of good profits in a company and good futures will drive financiers and investors from all over the world to invest. Billions will literally move in seconds in the modern day if Apple or a bank or oil company announces big news like a drop in profits or a successful product, billions can change instantly. News of a terrorist attack or a coronavirus will drive trillions off the stock exchange. It is the journalist who is tasked often with finding this information to spread. It's not just the material world that makes journalism an honourable as well as vital profession. People rely on it to inform them on how the world is working and what is true or not. If you had a friend who went into an alehouse in 1300 AD, who told you information and news from travels, and then one day you found out it wasn't true, you might be devastated and may never trust them again. The news is the same. People get angry if they think they have been lied to or misled. The media in the modern age is facing a lot of backlash with criticisms of bias or poor investigative standards. The first signs of this were in the United States, but increasingly these ideas are being spread to Britain, Europe and many other countries. We like to think that in democracies the media are independent and fiercely fighting to get information that the powerful do not want the people to have. Yet nobody really thinks the newspapers and the news media do a good job of getting the truth out to the world. Whether the fourth estate has actually been good is not up for debate. Whether the fourth estate is still having a positive impact on the world is more up for debate. There are various degrees of conspiracies in the media that are manipulating people, that news barons sit around and decide what people should be informed about, and we're all just receptacles of the nonsense. But our lives and beliefs are still largely informed by the news we receive. The media is our middleman to information. 
It's how we work out what is going on in the world. There is little censorship, but much self-censorship. When it takes the rich and powerful decades to get their comeuppance from their wrongs, when their crimes are generally known to a large number of people as an open secret, you know that's self-censorship. How long did Harvey Weinstein get away with systematic rape and abuse? The same with Jeffrey Epstein. It looks like Prince Andrew will get away with it too. Most people want the rich and powerful to be treated the same as everybody else. But allegations like Prince Andrew have been reported on and have slowly disappeared from public view. This is the allegation that a royal sexually abused an underage girl and after a week or two in the media, it's hardly talked about anymore. Shouldn't the free media be pressing for him to be questioned and investigated like everybody else? That everybody who owns the means of mass communication is wealthy beyond belief is not a conspiracy. Whether it's a media conglomeration like Disney, Comcast or NBC Universal and their incredibly wealthy companies, or if they're the plaything of the rich like Washington Post owned by Jeff Bezos, or if it's a Rupert Murdoch type individual, all these media companies are owned by people who have no incentive to want to investigate the crimes of other large corporations or malleable yet successful politicians. That we have a free press is hard to deny. But that the fourth estate is successful in holding to account and asserting the public will and public voice over the public forum is not a charge that can be levelled in much of the media. The media reports on most things, but not in the order we think they should be. Many stories we think should be bigger news, but never are. US life expectancy is going down. Economic inequality is rife. Things that affect the ordinary person are far more important than gossip and rumour, procedure and the covering of drama that perpetuates in the media. Parliamentary debates and the high offices of state are more important. But what happens in your life and how you interact with the world, such as the state of housing, living costs, homelessness, economic inequality and the quality of life, are far more important on your life than most things that are covered in the media. However, I believe the news media is still yet to really react to the coming of the internet and artificial intelligence. At the moment it is resulting in strong media concentration, where due to declining revenues media companies are being bought up. But once the internet and AI revolution takes place, truly it will allow for a far broader section of news to be published. Hyperlocal and specific news can be sent to you. News companies want you to buy the news. We think it should be free, and the internet has taught us information should be fair and free. So most people will not pay for news. But what if you sell the platform the news is delivered on? I'm sure many of us would pay money if news was delivered well enough to be hyper-personal and informative. If the information revolution is to mean anything, then it's not just about getting the news out there. It's making information get to the consumer as quickly and efficiently as possible. The internet is how we'll increasingly get our news sent to us. Like the important people of all who were the first to get information of the state sent direct to them via writing, AI and computing power, along with some human journalism, should mean we get increasingly more relevant news. This Spotify for News, where you pay a monthly subscription, and it will provide you with the most relevant news for you, depending on what others read about certain topics. For the price of a Spotify subscription, you could get hyper-personalised news by pulling together news articles from independent, reliable news platforms that use AI algorithms to provide a huge amount of news and information, and who get paid for supplying good quality information. 
Reread the New York Times' version of the news as you would have done 100 years ago, or would get from the man at the tavern 1,000 years ago, or from your neighbour. It is all still their version of what happened. You read the Washington Post's version of the news, or the BBC's version, and maybe a combination of a couple more newspapers. But what if AI and algorithms could provide you your news? Newspapers try to predict what the average person in their readership wants to know. So if you read the Financial Times, you will get financial news. You read the Guardian for a socially progressive slant on the news, and a combination of the two might provide you with a rough estimate of what you need to know in your life. This then raises the question, what if AI and algorithm could heighten the information you need to know with a diligent algorithm-written report about the football match you played in an amateur league and how the other teams fared in the league as a normal news report that would have taken a journalist to attend the game and report on it to publish it in a paper and would need a few thousand interested parties to make it economically viable to report on that. But with AI and algorithms, it might only need 15 to 20 people to make that sort of news possible. The next story on your feed could be a detailed story about a robbery a few streets down from you, and then news about a water leak on your street. Again, a story that may have never been published or written, as only 20 people might need to know, but it's information they need to know. Then bigger regional news about citywide news that you might need to know about. A gin tasting event down the road from you you might be interested in, and a politician due to speak about an area you're interested in, and then country or statewide news events that you might be interested in, and your favourite sports stories sent to your door. Facebook is perhaps the closest we have to this situation, but their horrible use of algorithms and the fact it's free means it only uses your data to sell ads, not deliver news. But if the past has seen anything, is that we will get more and more information over time, and it will become more and more useful to our everyday life. Information is the most important resource in our life. It controls our life. Information informs us how to live our life and what is beyond our own eyes. In the last 2,000 years, humans have gotten better at many things. That is well attested to. But don't underestimate how the access to information has improved our life. Before, we heard gossip and tale, then we got printed news and actual information. Then we got the newspaper industry, and how that pushed more of the truth into people's hands. From there, we got newspapers for all, and then radio and television, allowing us to experience news on a physical scale, being able to hear and see the news. Now we have the internet pushing news worldwide, and within a click I can get news from multiple sources about the same event from a dozen papers all over the world. While social media helps inform us on what our friends are reading, or at least that's how it should work, the aim should always be to move forward. And the remaining issues in which the news media could move forward, from press concentration and badly incentivized companies such as Facebook pushing people towards certain types of news that inflames rather than informs and news which pushes people away from issues that matter to them towards ones which matters to the state or generalised society. But we are getting news, and we are getting better at searching and informing ourselves. Over decades this news becomes internalised and becomes part of our society, and in every way improves our life. In the future we should hope this continues to get better, 
and our lives are filled with more useful information about what is going on in the world and how the world actually works. For all the benefits of a democratised spread of information has given us and how it informed us and led to a knowledge revolution in understanding and being able to explain what goes on and crucially why something has gone on. The news media is listed as number 61 on my list of the greatest inventions of all time. <laughs>